I am ready. Let's do this. Let's do it. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to InsureTech Amplified. Today, we are joined by Christina Lucas, an award-winning senior executive and insurance industry visionary. I love being visionaries. Christina, it is so great to have you on the show. How are you doing? I am great, and I'm really humbled by the intro. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I'm humbled just to have you on the show. Do me a favor, and let's give our listeners a little bit of your background for some context. You know, my background is in insurance, but I'd say my career has been really in two pieces. You know, the first piece or the first segment is management consulting. Because in a startup, I was kind of in large consultancy. Um, the second half of my career is in insurance. And then before that, I mean, when I kind of think about my life growing up, I really enjoyed, you know, a lot of different interests, you know, traveling and adventure and problem solving and connecting with people. And I found that both kind of that consulting side and the insurance side has been able to create those opportunities for me um, throughout my career, which probably like coming out of college, I never would have said either consulting or insurance would have been the areas that would have brought that type of, you know, the experiences that I've had in the, uh, the connections that I've made. But funny enough, this things happen. Yeah, look, I think it takes a certain special kind of person to be really adaptable in any situation, right? So being able to switch from one thing to another, we can get to that too. I want to share something with you about me and see if you feel any sort of symbiosis with this. When I was a kid, I was mm -hmm. born in California, raised in Massachusetts, moved to New Jersey, moved to Connecticut, went to three different schools in Connecticut, went to another school for high school, and then moved back to Connecticut, went to, the, went to Japan for study abroad, came back to Connecticut and graduated from college. And I feel like I was like all over the map, but the one thing I always felt super comfortable was no matter where I went, I felt like I could fit in. I felt like I could adapt to mm -hmm. that. Where does it come from for you? Uh, very similar. I think we're kindred spirits, Michael. Uh, maybe we had similar parents. <laughs> I was the same. <laughs> I, I actually changed schools 14 times between kindergarten and 12th grade. And so when you talk about kind of adaptability and flexibility, that's really key when you're moving from kind of one place to another. Of course, that's, you know, more years, more changes in our school year. So, yeah. you know, I've switched schools sometimes during the middle of the school year as well. That. So that ability to kind of pick up and make new friends in a new location, connect with people, join sports teams, kind of be independent and resilient as well, like, like catch up with whatever was in the history book that the the class had already read for the, the previous months. You know, it's a challenge, but I enjoy it. But I think, you know, as I went into consulting and later on into my career as well, it's allowed me to kind of jump into something as the new kid on the block, really figure out how to immerse myself and, and connect with others. Did you still think about it as an adult? And, and I'll give you an example for me again, just so you can understand. I was working at Goldman Sachs in Tokyo and I was seconded to Hong Kong. And I had to walk onto mm -hmm. a trading floor that really didn't want to be in my business. They'd sent two other guys out there to do this. Both of them failed, like objective, objectively failed. And when I walked on the floor, I'm not kidding. People literally turned and looked at the doors I walked in and laughed at me. <laughs> they really did. I'm not kidding. And they did yeah. that because they're just like, you're walking into failure. We don't know who you are. No one here is going to yeah. support you. You are screwed from day one. <laughs> but I didn't feel scared at all. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you thought about that as an adult too. Like it's one thing when you're a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old to think like, mm -hmm. okay, I just moved from here to there. But as an adult to have that same feeling continue, I don't know. Did you get that as well? 
you know, I think it's you, it's just a great example. I think you kind of draw on the skills that you built over time. So I can say kind of similar, my, you know, age experience when um, my boss was like, hey, Christina, how about moving to Tokyo and running, you know, claims operations for AIG Asia? And I had never even been to Japan before and the job was going to start in a couple of weeks. And I thought, oh my gosh, I don't know Japanese. I don't know anything about the culture. Um, and I hear all of these things about kind of life in Japan, being a woman, you know, being a person of color as well. Like, what am I getting into? Right. And I remember talking to one of my mentors and he's just like, hey, Christina, you'll be fine. You know, you've got the basics, the skills to manage the situation and, you know, you'll quickly adapt. And I found, you know, I got there. People, you know, it's Japan, so they weren't so blunt as to just turn around and, and stare, <laughs> uh, make that comment to me. Uh, but, you know, I, I managed to navigate it. And I think it's because you learn to be flexible, adapt, connect to people and and listening a lot and reading the cues around you so you can navigate the space. I want to combine a few things here, if you don't mind. So you start off with management consulting, right, which is not insurance at any level. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like a lot of people that I talk to that come out of a consulting background and then move into, frankly, any other verticals, that one of the things they tell me is that they learned how to learn as a consultant. Mm-hmm. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? So that, again, going into a new place mm-hmm. or a new business never felt scary because that's kind of what you did as a job before. And now you just got mm-hmm. to like dig even deeper. Do you feel the same way as well? Can you talk a little bit about how that transition took place and what like some of the challenges were, what some of the easy things were, and what you kind of learned from going through that? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, that's a really good analogy. So when I started off in management consulting, I was doing more long-term tech projects. Tech. So... The, yeah, so ERP implementations, which had a very long life cycle. Right. And then when I kind of ended my, you know, management consult career before I went to insurance, I was doing a lot more kind of quick hit strategic projects for clients around Latin America. Uh, and so, like you said, you kind of have to immerse yourself so you can enter the room with a C-suite executive look like you understand their business, their industry, and you may not have been worked in that industry at all, but you're doing these constant kind of research projects on that industry, on the people in the room, the stakeholders, their business challenges. So you can speak with somewhat authority, but you're also, I think the beauty of it, you're also given the permission to ask questions, to be a little bit ignorant about it and to ask those probing questions and be naive, which is part of the consulting process. So I think that when you take that into the uh, corporate side, uh, having that ability to be humble and open to feedback and perspectives really helps you to be a really good, uh, a much better executive. You're not going in thinking, I know more than everybody in the room. I'm going to tell everybody what to do. You're going in. It's like, I know a little bit, but you're the expert in this niche. You're the expert in that niche. Tell me more about it. Let me see how it all fits together. So for those of us that maintain this like constant curiosity, and we were saying like, I feel in a way like a kindred spirit as well, right? Because we shared a bunch of sort of very similar um, opportunities and experiences. But I struggle with, as a, somebody who had people working for him, how do I imbue the people that work with me and for me with that same level of curiosity? Do you know what I mean? And give them the ability mm-hmm. to connect as well, which I always found easy to do, but I found that other people were not as good at that. How does that affect the way mm-hmm. you lead when you get into that leadership position? 
I say, you know, Japan, kind of going back to Japan, was a really great, I guess, training ground for me as an executive leader, you know, in management consulting, because I had been in consulting kind of the two years before that, almost you're micromanaging everything that you do, because you're kind of thinking you're creating this presentation, a customer, a client's paying for your thought leadership, and they're going to criticize every missing, you know, comma or you know, incorrect bullet format, et cetera. So I went into the insurance industry kind of with this consulting mindset of perfection of, of right. being, you know, coming as from a consultant. When I went to Japan, I had no control over anything around me. I didn't, I couldn't read, I couldn't write. <laughs> uh, and so I had to learn to trust and delegate. So creating a scope, what do we want to do? What do we want to accomplish as a team? Uh, empowering my team members to go forth and do it, right? And empowering them to be able to produce the deliverables. We'd have our touch points, but I couldn't double check anything. I couldn't micromanage anything anymore because I couldn't read it. So I think, you know, so that really helped me to learn, like, how do I make sure that my team members are comfortable, confident, and my job as a leader is to be the shield, you know, if there's friction in the system to protect them, if somebody messes up to be that one that kind of steps up and says, I take responsibility, it's our team, but they really need to be empowered to be able to operate because I can't operate in the environment on my own. How long were you there? Uh, A little over a year. Okay. So long enough though, to understand that like what you were doing there was very different than what you were doing when you were back in the United States and in other regions. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Were there certain things that you took back with you where you thought, maybe I can employ some of this methodology that I had to do here where I was not in the dark per se, but like you said, less in control of your surroundings, that maybe I can adapt back to what I need to do in the United States? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, a couple of things was around crystallizing what the vision was or what the objective was and what the expected outcomes are. So I could share that with my team members which is what I did in Japan and then could do with my U.S. team. And like I said, really empowering them to move forward. And like I said, oftentimes that little micromanager voice like, oh, that's not exactly how I would do it. But I would just let it go say, you know what? I want to make sure that people feel confident that it's their work, that they're going forward. And I could be a coach, you know, instead of kind of a directive. And so that really changed my leadership style when I came back to the U.S., and you know, manage teams in the U.S. and then end up moving to Europe after that a couple of years later. Oh wow! Can I ask you this? Like, we didn't go over this yet. Where did you grow up, actually? I know you, you went to fourteen different schools, but like, where were you born? And kind of, and I'll tell you why mm-hmm. for me. But I'm curious. Like, did you leave your hometown? Did you go to different states and different places, or was it just in like different mm-hmm. towns around the same place? Uh, so I'm born in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, so a Midwesterner, well, it depends on what your Where point you of view, it's a Midwesterner or a Southerner. Right. And then we ended up moving uh, to, we go through a couple of times around Louisville. We lived in Germany for a while. My mom was military. Was we lived ask, in yeah. Alabama for a while. We lived in Virginia for a while. So there was kind of a mix of between the U.S. and Germany. Right. And really Germany was where I kind of first had my international abroad experience right. and kind of fell in love with being outside the U.S. Did you feel like your life was going to be international from then on? And again, I'll get back to me. Like I had never been outside of the United States until I went to Japan for my study abroad. 
So for me, it was just so eye-opening because I grew up poor and mm -hmm. I grew up in small towns. So my frame of reference for the world, and remember back then, I'm probably 10 years or more older than you are. But back then, like the news that we got was super hyper-local. Mm -hmm. So just getting that international exposure changed my worldview in so many different ways. What was the impact on you? Very, very similar. Like I said, for kindred spirits, you know, my, I think mine is also just the example of the serendipity of life. Tell me. When I was in second grade, I was hit by a car. Actually, I was was walking with my sister back home, and a guy ran a, a stop sign. Oh no. And it completely changed my life in a, in a positive way. It could, have, it could have been quite tragic, but I won't go into the graphic details of the injuries, but basically I had to be homeschooled uh, for, you know, for the rest of the school year. So for about six months and um, my mom had to quit her job to take care of me while I was being homeschooled during that time. After that, when she decided to go back to work, no one would hire her. At the time, the job market is very different than now, but she was a woman. They felt like, well, she had quit her job to, for family obligations. So was she really committed to a career? Oh, no. And so she just had that struggle of like, what do I do next? And how do I get a job to kind of get back to normal? And so kind of on a whim, my mom joined the army. Uh, and well, So she wasn't in the army before that? <laughs> no, she was not in the army. Okay, go but. Ahead. It was really like looking at the commercial and be all you can be. And <laughs> she was really looking at it from the basics of a place to live, a roof over the head and, and good schooling for her child. Right. So so she ended up joining and, and um, kind of think of this in, you know, in, now in the context of some of the social challenges we have of just people being able to like you said, make ends meet and finding resources and support. Yeah. So, you know, kind of everyone else, you know, who went to the military ended up in Texas or, you know, California, Nevada or somewhere. And um, <laughs> she was stationed in Germany. And so it was also for us kind of going from a very small, you know, smallish town, not so small as yours, I think, but she's going to Europe. And um, I remember when I got to Frankfurt and, uh, stepped off the plane for the first time and it was almost like with the uh, Wizard of Oz movie you know how Dorothy goes from like Kansas and it's black and white right. and then it's like technicolor right. and when I went to Frankfurt it was like complete technicolor and so it did change my life of like wow this is so different you know and then the school that I went to in, in Louisville was you know, a very homogenous school, not a lot of resources. And then I went to a school in Germany, the American school for the military kids yeah. and kids of all backgrounds from all over the world. And I just loved it. And I said, I want to be not in Kentucky <laughs> <So>. <laughs> when I grow up. But it's a fair thing to say, right? Like it, it sounds a little bit like, I don't want to say mean but, and or derogatory because it's not. But what it means is that like you have this expanded view and that was kind of the point that I wanted to make, right? And you were fortunate in a way because at a younger age, right? Like my first time out of the country, like was, I was 20 years old. You were clearly mm -hmm. younger than that. And to have mm -hmm. that experience at that age really opens up the whole worldview because now you think, what else is there, yeah. mm -hmm. Right. Did you learn German at all when you were there or no? I did. We lived in the German neighborhood. We didn't live on base. So all of my little uh, neighborhood buddies were German. So I was fluent in German and that kind of continued throughout my career. I, was a, I did an exchange program to 
East Germany, uh, right after the wall came down. So oh, I was wow. the first American in my little town since World War II. I interned in Berlin in college. I worked, you know, there a bit when I was with Deloitte. So, so it's kind of my second language, if you will. <laughs> Got it. So I find this actually really interesting. I, I say this about myself a lot. Like I told you, I lived in Japan for 22 years and, and I want to back up for a second too, just to share this with you too. You're going to hate me for this, but like I was born on Vandenberg Air Force Base. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so fair enough. It wasn't in Germany. Yeah. And actually my father mm -hmm. was stationed on a very small island in Japan called Okino. I can't remember the last part of the name. Anyway, we were supposed to go with him. But let's just say he didn't get along with his senior management that well. And they were like, yeah, mm -hmm. screw your family. They're going to stay in Boston. Anyway, I don't, I always consider myself as a guy who doesn't look like he speaks Japanese. Mm -hmm. And it really surprised people in Japan. And even today, like I was out having lunch and dinner today and there were some Japanese people mm -hmm. around and I always walk over and say like, how are you doing? And chat with them. And just like, why? Did you get that at mm -hmm. all when you were in Germany? Like, this doesn't seem like a person that should be able to talk to me, but you are. You know what I mean? The same thing happened to me. Absolutely. Well, it was kind of two things. Like I said, when I was in when I was in elementary school, there were a lot of, you know, Americans around the area because of that. So that wasn't such a big deal. I think when I went to Mecklenburg Far Palmer and right after the wall fell and I was I was just the first American. Right. And then I was like so different. So that was almost like a, you know, like a Smithsonian exhibit, I felt at times. <laughs> So, yeah, you know, that was a kind of an interesting economy there. But I think, you know, if you think about Germany now, they're nilly vanilly were German. Like there are all kinds of, <laughs> of, of folks who were in Germany that, you know, really helped to um, kind of make it more a diverse place. But definitely think in the corporate context, when I was working there, uh, people were a bit surprised because I was with an American team right. and I think some of the Germans thought I, you know, I didn't speak German either, like right. my, my American, my other colleagues. So that was a surprise because people can be quite candid yeah. uh, in their native language. <laughs> they don't, <laughs> they think, don't think that you understand. understand. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you get on it all the time. <laughs> oh my God. I, we, I used to sit on the train in Tokyo and I remember one time very specifically, there was this little girl, probably seven or eight years old sitting with her mother. And she turned to her mom. She looked at me because I was sitting down next to her on the subway. She looked at her mom and she said, Okasa, Okasa, Nanigo no. What language is he speaking, right? And I just turned back to her and I went like this, Ego desu. In English. I just said, English. Speaking English. And she freaked out and her mother freaked out and I loved it. Anyway, I had fun doing that. Let me ask you this Was there some connection, you think, that as a kid learning another language and then moving into the tech world, do you code as well? Mm -hmm. So talk to me about that. Yeah. Where did that come from? And did that come easy for you? Because you understood kind of the logic of language, if that makes sense? I do. And I, I do credit that transition because of languages. And I think maybe for you, knowing Japanese fluently, you, know, you kind of have the same experience. But German is a very, of course, syntactical, you know, uh, consistent formatting, grammar, structured language. Okay. And when I came back to the U.S., I studied Latin as well, which is also very structured syntactical. Right. So when I was introduced to coding and around like the Y2K time period, it was like, oh, this is easy because it's, <laughs> it's this very logical base. It's like German or it's like Latin. And so I loved it. And, you know, in hindsight, this is like, I guess, 20 years later, 25 years later, but I was like, I would love to be a linguistics major, but I'm like, what kind of career do you have in linguistics? So 
I went into economics and business and kind of did other things. And now it's like coming full circle. Like if I had been a linguistics major, I could have been in this large, you know, large language models and, and AI and, <laughs> and been in that space. But I love the structure of it and the regularity. And that's what I really enjoyed, um, yeah. you know, about coding. I lo I'm not great at computer coding at all, actually. I'm super interested in it. And I do, like you said, mm -hmm. I do love the structure and the logic of it. But for mm -hmm. me, like the ability to speak foreign languages, my business partner's French. Mm -hmm. I don't f mm -hmm. speak French as well as I would like to, but I understand a lot of the stuff that he says and being able to speak Japanese and then English as well. I just love that idea of being able to communicate because I feel like, what's the right way to say this? It makes the world feel smaller to me, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. But also I like the ability to take something learned in one place and applied in another place, right? Because I think if you can understand the logic of this and apply it to that, it's better. And I'm curious with you, you have this massive tech background. Talk to me again in a little bit more detail about that transition into insurance, which how did that happen, first of all? And second of all, what mm -hmm. did you take from tech into insurance, particularly at a time potentially where insure tech started being a thing? No, that's a very interesting question. And I like how you kind of said, you know, you tend to take one thing from kind of one industry or even like one culture, right? And apply it to the other. And and that I'll say that ambidexterity, you yeah. know, kind of across industries or, you know, across cultures is really key. From the tech side, I kind of fell into it. It's like you know, everybody like late 90s, early 2000s was in tech. So like if you're not in it, it's kind of a bit of a FOMO there. <laughs> but, you know, my uh, undergrad was in economics and then I went into business and I thought I wanted to be a PhD economist. And so I ended up working for a PhD economist and I realized this is not for me, but I really love working with data. Uh, and so I loved building the statistical models. Right. Uh, and so part of that was kind of coding, you know, kind of the logic behind building the statistical models and then kind of working with the statistical models. So I enjoyed that part. Of it. And that's when I said, well, maybe it's really the data and the tech side that I enjoy and not necessarily kind of the academic research part of it. So you kind of do these little things and you kind of fail and then you're like, okay, let me try something different. So that's when I moved into consulting. And when I first went into consulting, I worked for a, a startup. I was like employee number three. It was at time of euphoria in the tech industry. So I was able to do coding, but I was also like program manager and business development and, you know, every hat in between, which I love because yeah. you get to see like all these different roles in a smaller organization. Um, and then I ended up moving over to a larger company doing uh, these huge ERP implementations with Oracle and SAP. I ended up moving to Brazil and I lived there for a bit and worked a lot across Latin America um, in consulting. And... I never actually had an insurance client kind of in all of my you know, dozen years or so in consulting, you know, interesting enough, but I decided, you know, I wanted to kind of not be in consulting anymore, but actually kind of be the one with skin in the game to own the outcome instead of, like you said, kind of doing these projects and saying, okay, here's the deck, right. and let me move on. And so Chartis had reached out and they had a new role of, you know, head of claims operations for Latin America. It was a startup role. And I think I interviewed with them for like eight months. It was a long role because I wasn't actively looking and I think they were trying to figure out what they were looking for as well. 
and they figured that they could teach me the insurance side, but kind of to our conversation up to now, what are the other skills that are transferable? Yeah. The agility, kind of working in ambiguous environments, working across multiple cultures, the problem solving, you know, kind of the research and then developing a plan. Like they needed those types of skills. So I never heard of them. I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> you know, this <laughs> looks like it'll be an interesting. It's in Latin America. I get to move to Miami. So I took it. And of course, you know, Chartist a couple of years later, they changed their name back to AIG. But it was, you know, kind of my foray into the insurance industry. But I was really kind of, I was working in insurance, but I felt like my role was this restructuring, this um, this transformation initiative, which I had done in other industries. Right. So, and it was just happened to be in the insurance industry at the time. And I happened to be on the payroll of an insurance company. So I had skin in the game and accountability that this would actually get delivered. And this was in claims management, you said? Mm-hmm. So do you feel a little bit fortunate, right? Because, I mean, I do so many conversations about insurance and everybody says that the claims experience is where the rubber hits the road for insurance, right? Because that's where the, that's where like the real interaction is between the people that hold policies and the companies that write those policies. Do you feel in a way, and you kind of hinted at this, but do you feel in a way that like every step along the way, not just in your professional career, but in your life kind of led to that exact thing? Definitely, I think, you know, coming from consulting in particular, it's a customer-focused business, right? For sure. And and you think about claims, it's a customer-focused business around the experience of it all. Um, so I hadn't thought about it that way, but I'd say definitely all of those different, um, you know, challenges and opportunities and paths and client experiences and in other industries kind of really led to what creates a great claims experience for an organization and then, you know, how do you optimize that experience, you know, both internally for the employees at the insurance company working claims? Right. Because there's a huge kind of empathetic, you know, problem solving, you know, aspect of claims adjusters, as an example. Uh, and then, you know, he said that's really the value proposition or the brand proposition for an insurance carrier right. is the claims experience. Yeah, I almost feel like it's the perfect place to start inside an insurance company. That like every mm-hmm. actuary and every underwriter and every salesperson should work in the claims department. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because, and then move, yeah. I don't want to say backwards, but then move into other roles where maybe they want to spend more time. Because if you don't understand mm-hmm. this, like I'll, I'll put you this way. When I started at Morgan Stanley, they put us in, in the controllers and operations department to start. Mm-hmm. That was part mm-hmm. of the management training. And the idea was if you didn't understand what happened to a trade after it was done, mm-hmm. they actually gave us a book called After the Trade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we didn't understand like the operational aspect of it, they didn't think you could be innovative enough in the front office to understand, okay, we can do that thing, but how is it going to get processed at scale to actually help mm-hmm. us make money? And I feel like the claims is the same thing in the insurance industry. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, it's similar with, you don't want the underwriter to kind of throw the policy over the fence, you know, figuratively, right? Yeah. You need to really be able to understand the full life cycle and how does that claim experience kind of in fact impact the renewals as an example? And then how does that, you know, on the aggregate level, how does that claim data help to feed, you know, kind of your risk underwriting experience and pricing, et cetera, to go back in? And what are the emerging risks that could create new products as well, right? So what are the trends that are coming out of the claims data? So it comes full circle from that claims experience, but it's almost like on a, 
a basic level, you know, like the management training programs, if you work at uh, Starbucks or McDonald's or, you know, and you have to like be on the front lines first, you know, before you can be in the executive office. So you need to actually have that customer interaction, right. Before you should be sitting in kind of the ivory tower, um, kind of deciding on the direction of the company. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point. If you're in operations management at McDonald's, but you've never sat in front of the grill and flipped a burger or made the fries, like how can you actually be in operations management and understand like Mm -hmm. what the the potato usage is and all this other stuff? I I don't think it's that far off. Can I ask you this though? So based on all the stuff you've done and all the roles you've been in and all the experience you've had, when you take a step back now and you look at the insurance industry, based on your small company experience, mid-sized company experience, and large-sized company experience, when you think about like the necessity for innovation along the value chain, where mm-hmm. do you see, I don't want to say the biggest opportunity because I think it's kind of a, it's a lazy question, but where do you see mm-hmm. big opportunities to attack? I'd say, you know, one thing that I found really interesting right now, and it's, it's really this intersection between the insurance companies or reinsurance companies, insure tax, it's like, how do you close the protection or really the coverage protection gap, yep. right? And they see it from a strategic standpoint for our insurance companies of, you know, there's this whole challenge around the, the CAD environment and you're looking at California or Florida yep. where insurance companies are exiting the markets and they're exiting the markets because they don't have data uh, that can help them make kind of targeted underwriting decisions to appropriately kind of price the risk in those markets for homeowners uh, or business owners in those markets, right? So there's a data challenge there that can be solved frequently by some of the innovative technologies coming out from the insured tech space. So if you kind of look at this protection gap, you know, across the industry, you know, from an insurance company perspective, they want to be in those markets, but they can't because they don't have the data to do so. So they're just blanket leaving. Um, the, the consumers are kind of left without kind of that coverage, right? And that's helping, you know, prohibiting people from starting new businesses, being entrepreneurs, growing their business, hiring people, being homeowners in those markets. From a business perspective, you know, the insurance companies are leaving money on the table because they're not able to price the risk for those individual you know, policyholders. So there's this opportunity I see in that space um, that we need to address. And there's some, like I said, some really innovative products from insured techs that can help fill that. So it's how do we do matchmaker with the insured techs, with the insurance companies, so that they're able to really understand the market that they're in better and create new products um, to service those demographics. I was... We're kind of in the political season in the United States, if it's fair to say that, without getting too political. But I was reading something and actually listening something today that references something you were talking about. The homeowner insurance market in Florida, right, really got bifurcated. It really was very problematic towards the middle and the end of last year. And there was a new congressman that ran literally based on trying to solve that insurance problem. And I remember listening to it today. I was listening to a podcast while I was running today. Mm -hmm. And I heard that and I thought, yeah, you know, we had that conversation on Amplified with David Gritz, mm-hmm. right, from InsureTech New York. Mm-hmm. We spent a whole show just talking about that. It was just kind of cool to be involved in something that, like, yes. really addresses real people problems, yeah? Yeah, it's much more tangible. And I think, you know, people often think, oh, the big, bad insurance company, and they're not giving the insurance, right? And it's really an information or gap, and yeah. it's that data gap. 
And so like, how do we pull together all these different sources of structured and unstructured data so that we can create new products, right, for, for the market? And so I think that's like the biggest challenge. It's a great opportunity and it has societal impacts, you know, business impacts, and it's something that we can solve. But like I said, it's like, how do we bring the different parties together to be able to do so effectively? Do you feel like what's happening in the AI market, in the AI space, is going to assist us in this desire to use the existing data, whether structured or unstructured, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. to then fill or try to disintermediate that protection gap by being able to look at way more data at one time and provide really useful information to the underwriters, to the actuaries, to the salespeople, so that then they can create those products that may not have been able to be created just a few years ago, but because AI now is advancing so quickly that it may be used to solve some of those problems. Absolutely. I mean, if you kind of think about the way underwriting was traditionally done, it's a two-dimensional process. It's filling out something on paper and somebody's doing it, you know, creating, putting it in their model and accelerate. And with AI, now you've got this multi-dimensional way to look at a risk. Um, with inputs that are coming from third-party sources, you know, from their own systems themselves, from all these different sources. So how do you create kind of this Rubik's Cube, if you will, yeah. of, of data to be able to kind of price that risk, right? Understand that risk and price it appropriately. So definitely kind of looking at kind of going back to these you know, large language models and AI and how do you pull it all together to create new insurance products. Do you feel like all this data that you were talking about earlier, right, is now creating an environment for you where when you first entered the insurance industry, how many years ago was it? A dozen. Yeah, I was going to say like 12 years ago, right? Look at you, you're like, mm -hmm. do I have to count? <laughs> Until today. But not only, this, not only that you've learned so much over the past 12 years, but that because of the way technology is now becoming such a big part of what's happening in the insurance space, whether it's in InsurTech or directly into... <clears throat> incumbent insurers and, and reinsurers, that it's almost more exciting to be in the insurance business today than it was 12 years ago when you first started. Do you know what I mean? Like, did you feel back then you had to explain to people like, I'm joining the insurance industry, where now people are like, whoa, you're in the insurance industry? Do you know what I mean? No, I, I definitely think there's an opportunity to really change the perception or the face of insurance to be this more collaborative, inclusive, fun, exciting, yeah. um, you know, problem solving industry. And it's kind of interesting. I think, you know, part of the negative in, um, perception or image of insurance historically was because it was this one dimensional, it was, you were judged by that piece of paper, right? right. Um, by your, you know, your insurance application, if you will, which isn't capturing kind of the complexities, you know, or the, the true risk that you are. Um, and so now I think insurers have the opportunity to, to be, um, to look at you, you know, in a more multidimensional way, right. you know, be more collaborative, to be more real time, um, to really see you as an individual and not you as a collective risk, you know, and to be able to price that accordingly. And so if you look at how carriers are being more digital, if you look at, you know, all of the kind of, you know, investor presentations across the top insurers, it's all around being more digital, more digital enhancing the customer experience, you know, having more data so that they can really price an individual risk versus kind of a collective risk. Yeah. Um, so I think that makes it, you know, as an insurance person, you're not 
far, you know, separate from the, the policyholder, you're actually, you know, much more aligned with that policy owner and really creating something kind of unique that's, you know, meeting their individual needs. Do you get an opportunity to still interact with startups on a regular basis with InsureTechs? I do. I mean, you know, there's InsureTech New York, um, ITC. Me on a personal level, I love to share, I feel like, you know, kind of the, a senior in this industry at this point. So really talking to and mentoring um, kind of young startups, especially with my experience on claims to help them understand what's important to a claim adjuster, you know, what's important to ensure, how are they being managed for their performance reviews? You know, what's their motivation? Right. What are the metrics they're looking at? Um, so that ability to really mentor um, startups to share what it's like on the other side so they know who they're pitching to. Do you, because you, you mentioned the word mentor, right? So I have to ask you this. Do you feel like there's some kind of responsibility as well to be a role model for like this new generation of people? just in your work ethic, in the way you've learned, in the way you've adapted, in the way you've adjusted, in the way you've applied, as we talked about all the things that you've learned into new things on a constant basis, do you feel like a role model? Do you even want to be one? I wouldn't say role model, maybe the word, but uh, I'd say a coach. Okay, maybe that's a better way um, you to know, say it. Yeah, I'd yeah. say more of a coach, you know, I wouldn't say do as I do, um, <laughs> but like, hey, here's the hard knocks. You know, this right. is what I've learned along the way. This is what I've observed. And I also really enjoy being a connector. Um, so saying like, hey, you know, you have this problem. Are you looking for information on this? I know somebody in Zurich, you know, Tokyo, New York, uh, something very similar. I think you guys would be great together. You guys should meet. So I actually really enjoy just connecting networks across the board so that people can share those and really multiply. So kind of it's a connector and a net and a coach. So maybe that's a better way for me to use that terminology from now on. Do you also mm -hmm. encourage people, again, when you look back and look at your own experience, do you encourage people to, I want to say go overseas, but you know what I mean? Like work in different environments and work in different countries as well so that they can bring back that wealth of experience and just have a fuller life as well as a fuller career. I do. I'm always like, hey, go abroad, even if it's a short stint abroad. Like you said, it, it just gives you a different perspective than just being here in the U.S. or just here in the New York market and right. being able to kind of understand Lloyd's as an example. Right. Or we really understand, especially, I'd say, you know, from a regulatory compliance perspective, the the point of view from a Japanese insurer versus a U.S. insurer. A U.S. insurer can have some measure of error, you know, in, in calculations as an example. In Japan, it's like zero tolerance for error, but but you need to be in the environment to really understand how regulators work in these different environments and how that really impacts the psyche of the of the colleagues who are in those markets. Yeah. And then there's always, as you said, you know, little nuggets of best practices, ways of working, and one market, you know, that is kind of a unique, innovative thing in a different market. I get it. Okay, Christina, I'm going to let you go. This was really fascinating for me. Christina Lucas, we already said it, an award-winning executive insurance industry visionary. The visionary part is obvious from the conversation. I cannot thank you enough for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Michael, and so glad to reconnect with you on this, but also to just see that we have so many things in common. So. <laughs> this was awesome. Thank you so much. You have a great one.